right, well, let's begin with prayer. Father, thank you for being able to just sing your praise this evening and be reminded of all that you've done for us. In Christ Jesus, we are grateful. We come to end this day thanking you for your faithfulness to us and again, giving you glory and feeding off of your word. We pray you would teach us, for we have one teacher whose name is Jesus and his spirit that you've sent. Together with him, we pray that we would glorify you, our Father in heaven, our Lord Jesus Christ, seated at your right hand, and the Holy Spirit who dwells in us and has sealed us to the day of redemption. We thank you, God, three in one, for your saving work on our lives. We pray you would nourish us. Speak to our hearts and grow us up into Christ that we may bring glory to you increasingly in our lives and days. And we pray especially today for our country. You would protect us, our nation, our leaders, and you would raise up godly leaders trained by your churches to lead this nation. We ask you, Father, these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are in Psalm 91. We were in Psalm 90 last week, so we're following an outline um, that is set forth um, as a possible chronological um, order. And I'm using mainly Eric Lane's um, little commentary on focus focus on the Bible. They're great. I've been pleased with other books. Uh, Dale Ralph Davis's commentaries on historical books are the highest highest recommended uh, any of the historical books in the same series. But this is this has been good from what I have ventured into so far. And um, I like to start out really just reading what um, Eric Lane says as far as an introduction to it, because it sets the pace for the background. And we're interested when we study the Psalms to find the background of it, if there is one that we can trace uh, as the high, highest possible background, and then also to find the center of the Psalm, because that often determines the meaning in Hebrew poetry. So uh, here's what Eric Lane says on on this. He says, although anonymous, there are good reasons for attributing the Psalm to Moses, the rabbis did so, although on the doubtful principle that no other author is stipulated until 101, which means that 82 to 100 are also for Moses. The Septuagint and the Vulgate, uh, Septuagint, if you don't know, is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and the Vulgate is the Latin Vulgate, and they ascribe it to David on the occasion of his numbering the people, 2 Samuel 24. Uh, I've seen that in a lot of the commentaries in preparing for tonight as well. The atmosphere of the psalm is, however, that a nomadic life rather than the more settled times of, the da- of David's kingdom. So Eric Lane obviously indicates that there seems to be something else happening here in context which leads him to place it more with the uh, the numbers background we'll look at. So the most likely occasion, he says, is the ending of the plague 
of the venomous snakes, which occasioned 90. The spirit of murmuring had been put away, and God was again leading them on their journey. Numbers 21, 10 through 15. And eventually they arrived at the well, beer, Numbers 21, 16 through 18, um, where Moses composed an ode. And there's good evidence for believing he wrote this psalm at that time. Uh, the spirit of murmuring, and here's the evidences of it, the spirit of murmuring had given way to the spirit of faith, verse 1 and 2. Moses prayed that they would look to God as their refuge and their fortress, and now they were doing so. Um, second, the memory of the pestilence was still vivid in verses 3 and 6. Possibly they feared its reoccurrence. Third, they were exposed to the dangers of that area. Fierce desert tribes like um, Amalek, uh, Moab, and Midian who might launch raids by night or fire arrows from behind rocks by day. That's verse 5. And they had seen thousands of their friends fall prey to the plague, verse 7. Uh, another is other rigors of the nomadic life were continuing. Snares and traps, verse 3. Disease, verse 6. Disaster, verse 10. Boulders and rough ground, verse 12. And wild beasts, verse 13. As well as these incidents, there, were, there is the lesson Moses is trying to instill into them from, from their recent experience to repent of their discontent and replace it with the spirit of confidence in God as the one who protects his people from all dangers. And the note he strikes at the very outset is there in verse 1 through 2. So, um, I think he offers pretty convincing uh, proof that this is likely showing up from that um, unstable period that we looked at in Numbers. And it's, again, certainly open-handed because... Um, with this, you're going to find um, a lot of guesses on when it was. If it doesn't say explicitly, we are trying to make an educated guess of the background. And, um, but it is reasonable to think it is um, what, what Eric Lane set forth, and that's what I've, I've set before you. Now, um, let's look at the psalm itself. Um, if you turn there to Psalm 91... Um, Let's read it's a beautiful psalm it it's uh well known and um it was also greatly misused. You'll probably pick up on uh where it's quoted in the New Testament. We'll deal with that hopefully uh, by the end. so it says, "He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty." I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night nor the arrow that flies by day nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge. 
No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. And when he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. And with long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Again, it's God's word of God for the people of God. And um, the background, too, we want to read um, the expanse of that um, that we find there in Numbers 21. So let's turn to Numbers 21 again. And um, we're going to pick up after the bronze serpent incident. So we had we had that moment that built the background of Psalm 90. And now um, let's read chapter 21. And I'll read 10 through 20, the song of the well. And the people of Israel set out encamped at Abath, and they set out from Abath, encamped at Lai-Aberim, in the wilderness that is opposite of Moab, toward the sunrise. From there they set out encamped in the valley of Zered. From there they set out encamped on the other side of Arnon, which is in the wilderness that extends from the border of the Amorites, For Arnon is the border of Moab between Moab and the Amorites. And therefore it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord, Waheb in Sufa and the valleys of Arnon, the slope of the valleys that extends to the seed of Ar and leans to the border of Moab. And from there they continued to bear That is the well of which the Lord said to Moses, Gather the people together so that I may give them water. And then Israel sang this song, Spring up, O well, sing to it, the well that the princes made, that the nobles of the people dug with the scepter and with their staffs. And from the wilderness they went on to Matanah, and from Matanah to Nahalil, from Nahalil to Bamath. And from Bamath to the valley lying in the region of Moab and to the top of Pisgah that looks down on the desert. So I think, um, and hopefully I didn't skip, I feel like I might have jumped one sentence there, forgive me. But the point of reading that is just to get an idea of their on journey. And they've just had all of these um, uh serpents, these fiery serpents, which is really an interesting thing to think about. 
and the fiery serpents that that there were such things that um you know we we somewhat think mythologically about certain beasts that we see drawn all over the world we we know reality is that these things existed and and uh, fiery serpents certainly give more evidence to um very unusual types of creatures that attacked and so uh, there's a lot of good studies to work on that. Answers in Genesis is a great resource for that if you'd like to investigate more. Um, I found this uh, this statement that I thought helps inform the background as to the feeling of the psalm. And with the psalms, um, focusing on the feeling of it is certainly appropriate because we're dealing with poetry. It's full of emotion. And when we seek the center of the psalm, we're really looking for the emotional center and then we look at how the grounding of truth is is expressed in poetic form to encourage our souls in ways that it wouldn't be by just simple prose, simple statements. So the, the Lord has saw fit that we need more than narrative, more than just uh, didactic, straightforward teaching, but we need poetry. We need uh, it to be said in a different way. And I think that's fascinating in respect to our Creator and that He's made these forms, these art forms, that are actually employed in the Holy Writ of Scripture. Well, here's the quote I found in the ESV Expository Commentary on the Psalms, um, which I highly recommend. I've, I've got some of these commentaries, but the um, uh, just the ebook form here and there, but uh, the ESV.org just has, it, it really helps you in the sense of being able to listen. And um, you have to pay a little bit to get the better voices on there. I love listening to Conrad Mbewe's voice as he reads. Um, but I don't get anything off of this, but I will let you know that right now I think they have a, a 1999 intro special app. It's usually like 40 a year. And you get access to all the commentaries. Selection of voices and music. You don't want the free version on that because the first music set is like from Bethel. So you, <laughs> you want to kind of get past that if you don't know why. It's, it's just because it's coming out of a heretical area. But, um, it's, it's very, a very good resource and you have a great selection and it's, it's, uh, it's just a good help. And so I mentioned it to you. Don't get anything for it is, as a, a good resource that gives you a broad range of study tools uh, at a pretty good price, I think. Anyway, so um, this quote is from the ESV Expository Commentary on the Psalms. It says, As a psalm of confidence, this song has the purpose of strengthening the trust and endurance of the faithful. And in particular, Psalm 91 is especially fitted for a time in which members of the worshiping congregation are under duress, such as persecution or the suffering that comes from divine judgment on an unfaithful community. And this commentator, I have no idea what he what he really nailed down for the background. It doesn't seem that he really makes a decision. But this statement accords with exactly what Eric Lane has argued from the context of this this uh, particular psalm, the background of being Numbers 21, and the journey that's going on after it, 
And so they're a little bit shaken, um, and I use a little bit shaken probably as a figure of speech, about what has happened. And even though their lives have been spared, the trauma of that event certainly is going to impact their emotions and their feelings going forward. And they're going to need a word from God. And evidently, God has inspired and breathed out His Word in such a way that He doesn't simply tell them in a straightforward way, only don't be afraid, but He actually works through this artistic measure of poetry to lay something hold and to rest in their minds in a way that would rivet um, them in their hearts and make them really, really sore with some confidence. They needed that at this point. And the Lord knows when we need that. And it's just a, a token of His grace that He gives us this psalm to comfort and encourage and build our confidence um, that we can go to and be blessed by. Uh, so, that's the background. Uh, we've read the psalm. we looked at the, the psalm itself a little. And um, I try to really focus on what is he getting at in this. And it's, it's, it's one of these psalms that's hard to find um, exactly what the center, the center is. Um, if we know the background, um, it's half the bo- battle, but we don't necessarily have, um, I don't have the certainty to be able to tell you um, if, if poetically where this is going in the Hebrew, I haven't read where anybody's really nailing that in this particular psalm. Some of them are easier than others. I listened to uh, Bob Godfrey as on Ligonier Connect um, as well for preparation for this, and he took this psalm and another, and it's not in his book on learning to love the psalms, so you have to listen to this talk. So I listened to the talk, and um, really where Godfrey came in best was concerning the misquote of this psalm in the New Testament. So I'll use him in a moment. What is very clear, what is very clear is that there is safety in humility under the wings of God. And there's also a qualification if we take the background in mind. And that is, we have to be careful to not create circumstances that lead us outside of the protection of God by testing the Lord at Satan's bidding. And this could include pride, murmuring, irreverent uses of Scripture, like Satan used the Scripture very flippantly. And so we need to be content with the, in the shadow of the Almighty. This psalm is not giving a blanket, you'll never suffer, you'll never be in danger, any of that. It does give confidence that God will protect you. And the condition is, of course, with the background, is that there needs to be a, a, a serious, reverent application of the word and an obvious lack of murmuring, and a fullness of contentment in God. Um, 
when these things are in place, he is he is a shelter of the Most High. He to he's a shelter to us, that Most High God, and he is one who is a shadow that outcasts the shadow of of death in our lives. So we we don't need to just presume because we we can go to scripture and say, look, God promises these things and use this psalm very flippantly to assume that we we um, are never going to face difficulty or danger. Um, there's a, a season for this psalm that can grip God's people and comfort them that he indeed is going to protect them and no harm will befall them. And it's, it's, a, it's a treasure. It's a gift. And only the Holy Spirit can take this psalm and convey that to us at that time in our lives. And I believe we can know in those times with absolute confidence that God has not merely given us a psalm. He's given us a psalm for that day. A psalm for that moment. Um, and He has given them a seasonable word at a time they needed it. And they could trust, they can trust if they abide in Him that they will be safe. Uh, so it has a context to it. And um, also, uh, the so let's walk through the, this. Verses 1 and 2 are really an encouragement. If you notice the way it says, it's, it's put forth in that third person, He, He who dwells in the shelter of Most High will abide in the shadow of Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. There's this, um, almost when in the first verse, an invitation to, if you would, like admiring of the blessed man in Psalm 1. Oh, the blessedness of the man, or uh, the man that's blessed is this way. Of course, what's the response indicated that the psalmist wants us all to have? Well, the, the response is obvious. He wants, when we read that, to want to be blessed. He's inviting us into blessing. He's calling us in to be one who dwells in the shelter of the Most High and abides in the shadow of the Almighty. We don't use the word abide often, but it means to remain and dwell, of course. We, we may not really use that a lot. It can often be contemporary to live. It's, it's, question, it's an invitation to come and live um, in His shelter, to come and remain in His shadow and, and not venture out, but to, to, to live this way, to dwell in His presence. So this is the encouragement given. And He says to us that um, those who do, those who make it their lives to live in the shelter here and to abide in his shadow. He says, are promised God's protection in particular from all they had witnessed. And um, again, Eric Lane's helpful here because um, they witnessed a lot. This, this, uh, this text in particular reads like the best insurance policy you can possibly get. 
I mean, there, there's no insurance policy that makes this amount of, of promises and let alone is credible. But you can absolutely trust these things that God promises us um, as we choose to live and abide in him. And uh, that includes, again, snares, pestilence, violent attacks from enemies, verse 5 through 8, safety for both your person and your home, verses 9 through 10, angelic protection from the rigors of the journey and from wild beasts, 11 through 13. Eric Lane says, we Christians with our relatively settled life and peaceful communities may not find some of these particular things relevant, but our Christian pathway through the world is beset with difficulties from the people of the world, from false teachers, from the devil, and from our own sinful natures. Isn't that true? We may not be in the situation that they were in, but we certainly get these things. We understand because our lives are beset by all kinds of, of difficulties and traumas. And uh, God's protection covers these equally. In verse 4, uh, verse 4 in particular, he says, apply directly to us. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You may be thinking in the midst of, of coming out of a troublesome circumstance, well, maybe I could, maybe I could just be faithful enough, and then God would protect me. And I think the reminder is here, it's, it's God's faithfulness. It's only your trust. It's faith in Him, but it's, it's not your faithfulness here that's guaranteeing or is, is the condition. It's God's faithfulness. And God's faithfulness is what is the steam engine, if you would, for this, uh, these promises. Um, if you carry forward, or going back to the first two verses, I think it's important to understand that that trust, that trust in God um, after experiencing such things is so vital, and that trust in God really indicates we have a relationship with God, that we know something of Him. He's revealed Himself to us, and we know something of Him that we can, we can um, enjoy this relationship. But the, the qualification is you can enjoy that relationship if, if you're proud and not humble, if you're discontent and complaining. You, you can't possibly enjoy the relationship God's provided. It's going to take uh, a faith that is that is humble, that is content with God, um, that is refusing to complain of the providences of life, uh, but that just simply takes God at His word and comes under His wing. Um, you know, a little chick with its mother hen is not going to be um, conditionally cared for based on what it does. It's all over the place. It's cared for because it's a little chick and the hen takes it under the wing. God takes us under His wings. He gives that picture to show the benevolent care and mercy of um, of His grace in Jesus Christ. And Jesus uses that picture 
when he says, even to the uh, the people there in Jerusalem, I, I, how I would have gathered you as a hen gathers chicks under wings, but you would not. What makes the difference between you and them? Well, the difference is the Holy Spirit dwells in you as a believer. It's not your power. It's not your ability. It's not your um, works or any of that. It's that God Himself has already laid claim on your life. He has claimed you as His own. He will take care of you. And He will reveal Himself to you. And this is all to encourage us to rest in these promises of His protection and, and to not be also doubtful of them. Now, um, it's vital in this second section for us to obviously move to the part where um, where these, this Scripture was abused. And you know where it is, I, I assume. It's Matthew 4 where the temptation of... Jesus was uh, occurred, and it was Satan who took Jesus up to the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem and had quoted from this psalm saying that the Lord promises that um, you know he will send his angels to keep your feet from dashing even against a stone. It's, it's curious, and I think this is where Bob Godfrey um, particularly pointed out something helpful is he, it's curious how he doesn't quote the one about trampling on the viper, <laughs> trampling on the snake, right? It, Satan conveniently leaves out that part of the text. Um, why do you think that's the case, right? Well, it's convenient when that most likely refers to you and refers to your demise. And there he is taking Jesus up and saying, throw yourself down, using this text to provoke provoke him. And, uh, of course, you see that here, um, here in the text where this idea of protection, um, this idea of, of promise here, is used in a trivial way. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone and you will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent. You will trample underfoot. I mean, that's the very picture that God displays in the gospel of crushing the serpent. He doesn't go that far in quoting. He only quotes what he wants. So we learn a lesson right away, right? We learn the trivial use of Scripture, taking a Scripture like this, quoting the portion we want to serve a purpose, which ultimately is destructive. It's very trivial. Satan is, if you would, saying, give us a show, Jesus. If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. Let's see the angels bring you up. That'll prove it. And of course, Jesus says it's also written, you shall not test the Lord your God. What does Jesus teach us there by His valiant overcoming of Satan there in the wilderness? He teaches us, don't use God's Word trivially. Don't use His promises that way. It's an irreverent use of Scripture. And therefore, uh, He certainly could have called His angels. But what's the purpose of angels? 
what does the scripture say the angels are there to do? And um, as I meditated on this, Hebrews Hebrews one gives us a, a pretty clear picture about this, or not a pretty clear, very clear, as as he uh, closes up in verse. 14, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So angels don't get in the way of Jesus going to the cross. Uh, angels don't push the Lord to try to put on a show. Um, angels don't usurp scripture that would serve our salvation. Angels are there to serve for the sake of those who inherit, are to inherit salvation. And Jesus wasn't going to take liberty, as Philippians 2 tells us so clearly, uh, to just use the Word of God in a way that would put on a show for the devil or in a way that would just use flippantly the promise at any old time. Um, there were angels that ministered to Jesus throughout the Gospels. Again and again we see that. Um, but here we see they serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Well, that's you and me if we believe. That's our, our children and children's children that believe. It's generations before us that believe. It's all who are in Christ. And um, the Bible says in, in the great event of the destruction of Jerusalem, even that we at least have a beginning that He gathers from the four corners of the earth. His angels gather... His sheep, the Lord's sheep. Connect Psalm 23 there. The, the angels are gathering the Lord's sheep. And we, we have reason to believe He's still doing that. He's gathering His sheep into the churches, gathering them out of the world. The church speaks of being called out of the world, called into something, called into Christ, called into the body of believers, called into the family of God. And we're called out of the domain of darkness. We're put in the kingdom. Put in a kingdom now. And um, the angels are doing that. So are the angels active today? Are they doing something today? Um, by looking at Scripture and comparing it? Yes, absolutely. The Scripture tells us angels are active and their role primarily is serving the salvation of the elect. Um, they're not saving people, but they're doing the Lord's work of gathering them in. And uh, Scripture is being brought, all those types of things, in the work that they are sent to do. And, of course, Satan, we know, is a fallen angel, a creature that's rebellious. But no angel of God, no angel of God is going to be uh, encouraging us to use the word irreverently. To, to just grab any old promise to serve our own purposes. I, I think that's the lesson by the fact this is quoted this way. Is that this is a serious text. This text is true. This text is a place of comfort and refuge. He doesn't just promise He'll protect you from danger. He promises to protect you even from the fear of it. The hour that flies... Uh, by day, um, let's look at that. It says, you will not fear, verse 5, you will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day. Isn't that wonderful that 
Our God is able and also also willing. And, And knowing He's willing here is very important because it will affect your prayer. If you know God is actually willing to still your fears that you have at night or in the day, you can pray with confidence, Lord, calm my fears that I'm having. I know it's your will to do that. And it's your promise to do that. And I'm coming to you alone to do that. And so that's that's a wonderful thing. You can come with absolute confidence in prayer in that manner. And He promises to do that. And that's not a flippant use of Scripture. That's not an irreverent use. That's a use that gives God the glory and the trust that He deserves. That's a, that's a, a type of confidence that's content with God. Not seeking to, to find superstitious or uh, substitutionary ways in your own life to, to calm your fears. Um, it's easy to go out and, and just jump into a Freudian psychology in the world that tries to give you all these very quick takes on calming your fears. But as Christians, we ought to go to God with confidence because He promises He will do that. He will take care of the fears we have by day and by night. Um, There's numerous things here that we could dwell on. I think the, the the major point, though, is there is safety when we humble ourselves under God. We commit to being content with Him. We commit to not complaining of the providences of life. And we stop murmuring. And we don't use Scripture irreverently. You know, in other words, all of that's just a big synonym for trust the Lord after you've you've gone through something that has shaken you. Trust the Lord. Give your whole heart to Him afresh. Don't You can be afraid of trusting men, but you never have to fear trusting God. Uh, he, your heart always comes out better when you trust the Lord. Not so with men, but your heart always comes out better when you trust the Lord. And then God gives you wisdom and discernment going forward on how to relate to others, how to find trustworthy men and women and we should never give up to build relationships. But, you know, the, the safe places in the Word are God and His people. And there, there's no greater, greater place to rest than in God and with His people. Um, and that's largely why you and me come together. Is we know that. We believe that. Our actions tonight prove this. But... Um, but God has designed it that we need to be reminded of it again. And it's good for us to uh, come to this psalm and look at it and hopefully be be encouraged by it. If I were to call this psalm something, I would just say contentment in the shadow of the Almighty. Um, I think it was Jonah who was upset after the plant got destroyed. Right, He was very upset. And 
that conversation is recorded. It said, would you be ang- are you, do you do well to be angry? And of course, Jonah, it's all put down. You know, I don't know if you want all your thoughts put down, but his conversations, all, all the ugliness of his, but he was a believer. He was, had faith and all this, but he goes into says, you know, yeah, I have right to be angry. You know, it's just all there. Well, he wouldn't have wrote that if, if he didn't get the lesson. We wouldn't have the book of Jonah to tell us all about that incident and that experience. Um, and, and perhaps as we go on in life, we might have stories to tell our kids and grandkids about how we made mistakes in not trusting the Lord um, in hopes that they will not make those mistakes. Uh, but what better, what better, though, to learn early that he is to be trusted, that we can grow in our contentment, satisfaction, and faith in the Lord, and with that, be confident to go to God when we're afraid, to go to God when we are concerned with these dangers, and know and be able to close in confidence that um, God is going to keep his word, and he's going to protect us. He's going to keep us safe. And that's a word in good season for us in our, in our, the kindness of our Lord. I hope you'll be blessed by it. If you would, let's stand together and give him praise tonight. We'll be, uh, there, merciful God, number 413. Uh, if you'll stand and get ready as our musicians are coming.